The Irish Times Inside Politics podcast is going to be holding another live event. This one is in central Dublin on Thursday, May the 16th at 8am. We are going to be in Medley in Dublin too. We only have a few tickets left, so if you want to join me in conversation with head of Ipsos polling in the US, Cliff Young, along with Pat Leahy and Jennifer Bray, looking at the polling in Ireland in the run-up to the European and local elections, just go to irishtimes.com slash events where you can get your tickets. Hello and you're very welcome to the Inside Politics podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Hugh Linehan. Recently we were down at the Body and Soul Festival in Ballonlock Castle in County Westmeath where we held a number of discussions and podcasts in the middle of the woods, a very long way from our usual location in central Dublin. One of those conversations was with Alva Smith who was a spokeswoman and convener for the Coalition to Repeal the Eighth Amendment and she's also a founding member of Marriage Equality and a convener of the Feminist Open Forum and a board member of Equality and Rights Alliance and she's the former chair of the National LGBT Federation. And along with all of that, she began her involvement in activism as part of the women's liberation movement as a student in the 1970s. And she was the head of women's studies in UCD from 1990 to 2006. And she now works independently. We talked about her life and her politics. I am absolutely delighted to be joined by Alva Smith. Um, Let's go all the way back. First, the and the, the, the classic um, Irish question, where are you from and who are your people? Well, uh, <laughs> I have to say that I wore my Other Planet t-shirt today, <laughs> because I come from another planet. Uh, I mean, Ireland was totally a different planet when I was born in 1946, just after the, the Second World War. And I was born into a country then that, you know, hadn't had the war but it had had the emergency where things... I, I, it took me decades to understand what the emergency meant. It meant Ireland's position during the Second World War, which I was never very proud of, actually. But um, I was born into what you would call, I think, a very ordinary Dublin middle-class family. Uh, my father was a butcher in Rathmines. He had a shop. I have to tell you that he was one of the worst businessmen I've ever encountered in my entire life. He inherited the shop from his father who had come from County Meath and set up there in uh, 1904 or something like that, can't remember exactly. And um, so my father ran the shop, um, basically ran it into the ground. It was eventually uh, sold. But there was enough cash to keep the family in fairly fairly decent kind of circumstances. There wasn't any money for things, but um, there was always just enough to go around. So, you know, and I went to school in Our Lady School in Temple Oak, which was absolutely amazing because I think I'm one of the few women of my generation in Ireland who actually says I, there were, the nuns were absolutely terrific. They were great. Um, and I was very, very lucky because those nuns had been brought over to Ireland by Archbishop John Charles McQuaid, who was the great dragon of Catholicism. And he was, the, he was really the arch enemy of women, actually, in Ireland. And he was a terrible, dreadful man. Um, but he brought the nuns over because he thought that middle-class girls needed a particularly polite kind of uh, education. So we played, we didn't play hockey, we played lacrosse. Oh, that's very posh. Which was very posh, until it was discovered that only Protestant girls played lacrosse, so we were then transferred to hockey. But the point is that those nuns, they, hadn't, they, they didn't know anything about Ireland. They didn't understand that 
what Catholicism really meant in Ireland. They came from the dissenting tradition in England where you could ask questions. You weren't the establishment. You, you raised girls to be independent. And that was how I got to be raised, to ask questions. I didn't have to agree with everything. I wasn't expelled for all of the awful things I did. In fact, if anything, the nuns kind of laughed and said, oh my gosh, she's very difficult to handle. But the point was, I think if I had been with another Irish-born order, I would have been out of my ear about 10 million times. Do you think, and we might return to this, that there's a particular brand of Irish Catholicism? I mean, we know that the Catholic Church has issues around oh, yeah. women, women's rights, reproductive yeah. rights, sexuality in general, all those sorts of things. But particularly extreme in Ireland and why that would be? Well, you know, it's very hard to, to say that. I think that we had a particularly, it, it stayed, fun, you know, deeply patriarchal, deeply traditional, very authoritarian for a very long time because of our, our history, because of mm. the history of colonisation, uh, where the church obviously took over. So I think that um, the church's involvement um, in the making, if you like, of modern Ireland was certainly to the detriment of women. There is absolutely no doubt about that. They kept the lid on for far longer uh, than needed to be the case. But I do think that um, it started to change, particularly in the 1960s, and that actually if you look back, you can see that beginning to happen already. So you would have left school and gone straight to UCD? Is that right? Yes, I did actually. Um, I went to UCD just, I, f I forget exactly, I think it was about 1962. And the interesting thing was that for all that I was a middle-class girl, I was the first girl in a very large extended family of cousins and all kinds. I was the first girl to go to university. Mm. Some of, the, some of the, my boy cousins had gone, but none of the girls. So, it, it so was that in itself is an example of the social change you're talking about Absolutely. that started to happen, that, that that was possible for you to do. But it was considered very strange. It was considered very odd. There was a lot of concern for what would happen. Um, you know, my father actually wanted to come and collect me at Earlsford Terrace uh, in the butcher's van <laughs> with me. And so I said, no, say that was popular. No, yeah. that's not going to happen. Um, and, yeah, it, it was a very odd time because actually... I think girls, young women, we were treated very shoddily and very shabbily in UCD in those days. I mean, we were second-class citizens. We were just dismissed. You couldn't wear, you couldn't wear pants into the library. Uh, you couldn't wear trousers, and not for ages. And if you... I was doing French studies, and I remember going in one day to get a book by Voltaire, who was an 18th-century philosopher, who said a few things about God and one thing and another... And the word came out from the head librarian that I shouldn't be given this book because it was on the, um, it was censored. The band list. The band list, yeah. exactly. So, the, and that wouldn't have happened to one of the men. Because you know, UCD was a Catholic university. It was a very Catholic university. We still had crucifixes up. Uh, it was very, we were very pleased, I think, also mm. as women. Where were we going? What were we doing? Um, if our behaviour wasn't considered right... So uh, we did have a lot of fun, but at the same but time... But it was a much, much smaller place. I mean, people, this is the UCD of Earlsford Terrace, as you say, yeah. what's currently now the National Concert Hall and around that area. It's not yeah. the huge, sprawling campus in Belfield. No. It's more like the size of a secondary school, really, in some yes. ways, isn't it? Yes, and I mean, we had been raised, by and large, to be obedient and not to cause trouble. 
So going to university where we were still quite pleased, it was quite difficult to see yourself as potentially having the space or the opportunity to make trouble. But that being said, I mean, I think that it was around about that time that I began to sort of think, you know, things are not really great for me as a woman. I hadn't mm. made that into a kind of political analysis or a statement, but I was aware that I was treated differently because I was a girl. Basically. And those are years of great change in Ireland as in elsewhere from 1962 to the to the end of that decade. And we have a kind of, I have a vision in my head of what that might have been like, that there was yeah. there was student rebellion, there yes. was a kind of, yes. there, was a, there was a spirit of change in the air, particularly mm-hmm. in universities. And did you get that in UCD? Yeah, well, we did, particularly towards the end of the 1960s, just when I was kind of finishing up and I think I was doing a postgraduate degree at that time. Uh, it was a very male-led revolution. That was 1968 when everything hit the fan in, in France and you had student revolutions mm. in France and Germany and Italy. And then, well, Ireland uh, came a little bit, little bit on, on the heels of that. It was a year or two later. Um, it was very, very, very male-dominated. I knew some of the men, but, we, and it, was, but it was very difficult for women to get a, a foot in edgeways. I wasn't very political. You weren't? No, I wasn't. But I think that that was partly because there wasn't that space and there weren't any role models. You didn't have anybody there who had gone ahead of you who was showing you that you could actually speak up. And, Mm. you know, I wish I had. I wish I'd had that kind of understanding and courage to do that. But I didn't know you could do that. You know, here I was with, you know, a degree and going on studying. And at the same time, there was huge pressure on me to get married. And Was there? Oh, there was really, yes, absolutely. You were expected. It was expected that whatever about your your degree and your job and so on and so forth, um, that marriage was going to be on the cards sooner rather than later. And I did actually get married when I was, before I was in my Mm. mid-twenties. And it it only lasted six months because at that stage, I think I did realise that this was not really for me and that I had made a mistake. But of course, you know, in Ireland back, that was in the early 70s, There was no divorce. So leaving a marriage was actually a very, very, very radical thing to do, particularly uh, for a woman. But I had a job, I was working in UCD, and I thought, I'm not going to stay because if I stay here, this this will be very damaging for both of us. And we don't have children yet. Remember, there was no contraception, you know. You're... You really are talking about this different planet. The world was a really different place. So in a way, the, the best and the easiest and the wisest thing was to get out. But that meant that you were a kind of pariah. You were known as the girl who left her husband. Mm. Um, it wasn't even that the marriage didn't work or it broke down, but the girl who left her husband. So, um, And do you think, do, do you feel in retrospect that you were forced into, I mean, I don't mean literally forced no. into, but that there was, that you were succumbing to the kind of social pressure which you talk about to Definitely. get married? Definitely. I decision. mean, nobody forced me to get married. I yeah. said yes, okay? Yeah. Uh, but at the same time, that was what you were, that was what was expected of you. It was never going to be spelled out. There was no recipe book that said, or there was no book that said, then you do this and then you do that. The thing was that nobody really knew what women, young women who were independent did because there weren't all that many young women who were really independent and who were, I mean, we did get a good education. 
um, I would say that in UCD, by hook or by crook, I did get a good education. So the brain had started to kind of operate at this stage. And it began to sort of hit me, particularly in the 70s, because that was when the women's movement was coming up in the US, in the UK, on the continent. And I was reading, I was reading the papers, I was reading books. Um, people like the wonderful Mary Marr from the Irish Times were smuggling in banned books from America. She'd go over on a, a holiday to her home country and she'd bring back these, these books and I would hear about them. I didn't know her personally. Uh, people would tell me about them and when I would go away to England or to France. I spent my time in bookshops buying all these books that you couldn't get in Ireland. There was no online, there was no Amazon. Dear God, you know, when I hear myself talking about this now, I think, how on earth did we survive, you know? Well, it's funny <laughs> you should say... We barely had the telephone. It's funny sorry. you should say that, because, I mean, listening to you, I mean, you mentioned Mary Marr, and there is, there is a generation of women of that, of that yeah. wave of, of, of women's movement, the first wave of, in Ireland, certainly, of, 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 of the women's movement, who are incredibly articulate, yes. uh, incredibly intelligent, very intellectually yes. engaged, very, very active. So did you fall in with that bad crowd, essentially? Well, and, uh, they were a wonderful crowd, and I wish I had, but I didn't, right. because I was maybe a year or two younger, you know, I was just a couple of years, I was just a little bit down, and I was very, very in awe of them. Um, I, I knew vaguely about what was going on, that was in the very early 70s, but I have to say that um, after I left my husband, and, you know, the girl who left her husband, I was very ill for a few years after that. Um, I had really bad mental health problems. I was very badly depressed. And I suffered dreadfully from anorexia nervosa for six, seven years, actually. And um, it took me a long time. I did a lot of reading at that time. And it was wonderful to see that women's movement happening. And that, I think, was hugely important for me because as I was reading and thinking, I was understanding um, that there was nothing shameful about being deeply depressed. There was nothing shameful about even this anorexia, that what I had been doing was trying to live an independent life as a young woman with a brain and determination and actually a great degree of privilege from my social class and my education, mm. and that I still couldn't do it independently. I still couldn't really do it. And that that wasn't me that that was a system, that was, there was something there that was much bigger than me, and that women, we had to stand up to it. And in fact, even the anorexia was, of course, that striving to be somehow this absolutely, in this weird, contradictory way, to be this absolutely perfect uh, person who ironically hardly existed because you were almost trying to sort of starve yourself out of existence. So, you know, I had a very interesting trajectory through the 1970s where you could say I missed the women's movement, but in some way I missed the bit on the ground. But it was all being worked through me in myself and my body in a way that really marked me for absolutely ever because you never forget okay. that kind of experience. That's, that, that's really interesting. So it's a real, I mean, if we're talking about the personal and political, yes. you're sort of embodying that, that exactly. Absolutely. That. And, you know, I was thinking, as, even as I was coming down here um, this morning, I was thinking that for me, that feminism, my feminism, abs absolutely started with something very, very personal. But 
and, and it took some years then for it to become more, more broadly political. But I think it's that way for the so many women, and for, you know, I mean, it's probably true in social movements, but particularly with feminism, that there's something, there's something happens in your life there's some, it can be big, it can be small, it can be something you notice, it can be something that happens to you, it can be something awful. There's just something that brings that click that's mm. really personal. And the first thing is, this is hurting me, this is damaging me. And then there is that realisation that if it's damaging me, it's damaging others. So, and once you make that step, you've made the step into what you might call the political arena, at least that political thinking. And can I ask, did, did therapy or analysis or anything like that play a part in you finding your way through that as well? Well, you know, in those days, I hate to go back to those awful days, but in those days, what you got for therapy was electric shock therapy. Oh, so um, I had, I don't know how many sessions of um, ECT, electroconvulsive therapy, which was what passed for... Uh, I mean, I, th I think I'm very lucky, actually, to be here with a functioning brain. My memory is pretty bad, um, but I think that... I, I always say I've had an awfully bad memory, but I'm not sure that's true. I think it's just bad now, actually. Um, but that was psychiatric treatment. People did their best. Yeah. But it was very basic. We think of that as a very horrific thing now. How it was, was that for you? It was very horrific. It was yeah. absolutely appalling. It, I mean, I don't want to go into that in detail now because yeah. we'd be here forever, but, you know, you're, you're, they give you a tranquilizing injection and then you have um, rods attached to your head which give you electric shocks and which shock are supposed to jolt you out of the depression that you're in. But what they do is really, what, what really happens is that they make you actually feel very anxious, deeply, deeply, deeply anxious and very worried and... Um, it's an awful experience. Now, I know that in some cases it has been and can be used very uh, usefully, but actually to use it generally as what you would see as a solution for the problem of women in contemporary life seems to me to be at the very least a bit extreme. So, you know, for me, what it, it did ultimately jolt, jolt me into an awareness um, of what was going on. And somehow or another, I managed to keep my job in UCD, mm. partly because UCD were actually quite good about it. The only thing they ever did for me that was good, but also partly because I used to go into psychiatric hospital during the holidays. Um, but I did actually manage to keep my job. And I, I am so appreciative of that because having that job and that independence gave me the independence subsequently to really make some decisions about my life. And I, I always think that's so important. So you important. maintain this, which is very important and, and not necessarily typical for, for women, even at that stage, we're talking about exactly. the late 70s and the early 80s, a professional career and status and uh, objectives as a Well, as I a never thought of academic. it as a career. Did I you not? No, I thought I had a job. Okay. <laughs> I, you know, I couldn't aspire to a career. Um, it was a job. I was an educator. I was a lecturer. Um, I did this, that, and the other, and worked incredibly hard. Um, but there was the career paths for women in UCD were really very poor. I ended up taking case against UCD for not promoting me mm. much later on, and I still it's still a problem, isn't it? It's still a problem. Um, they've just uh, introduced 45 professorships for women now in UCD, uh, in universities in Ireland, special professorships. I did research on it. 
Um, I ultimately left UCD because they wouldn't make me a professor and I thought that's it, I am so out of here now, I have completely had it when I was 60 and I thought there's still some life in me yet and I'm so glad I left, I'm so glad I got out then, although I did hugely enjoy my work, I very much enjoyed that. But the universities were not women's friend and in fact in many ways they're still not women's friend and yet these are institutions that are supposed to be liberal, supposed to be about freedom of thought, supposed to be about equality and justice. And really that is absolutely not the case. And if you look at universities in social class terms, in terms of the ethnic mix, that is also true. So we have a lot really to take on there, I think. And they're so powerful, so powerful. And in terms of your own personal story and what you've just described, your consciousness of yourself as a lesbian, when, when does that happen in this, in this story? Um, ooh, a, a lot, a lot, a lot later because, okay. you know, there was a lot in between the, the, east, the electroconvulsive ter therapy and leaving the husband and doing the job and having various relationships with various um, not very marriageable sort of men, I would like to put it mildly, and then finally meeting, meeting a guy who I did actually like a lot and I thought, hmm, yes, right, and I was, I think, about 29 at the time, and I thought, I think I'd really like to have a, a baby, and he acquiesced. He didn't live in, in Dublin. He um, was an Englishman who lived in Belfast, so I did have a baby, and that, of course, was seen as being highly unorthodox, to put it mildly, very unconventional and indeed. What was the child to be called? What surname was she to have? And um, what kind of passport was she going to get? And I discovered that actually I couldn't take her out of the country when she was a baby without a passport in case I might be taking her abroad to have her adopted. And I had to go in and make a public declaration in the passport office that I wasn't going to have her adopted. The humiliations were endless. And in the meantime, UCD had tried actually to get rid of me at one point because when you're married, you weren't supposed to work in the public service. And I had stamped my foot and said, I'm not going. I then discovered my daughter couldn't get my, in the event of my untimely death, that she wouldn't benefit from my pension and insurance system because, um, because she was illegitimate. So ultimately, we got that sorted out by the Chester Beatty Library taking on um, the, the whole system of illegitimacy in the public service and children not benefiting. And that whole system was changed. So, you know, the knocks along the way wouldn't really have given you a lot of time to be asking yourself if you were a lesbian <laughs> or not. So it was, ki it was kind of busy, basically. <laughs> um, and then I, at that stage, had, I think, become very involved in... Um, in the women's movement that mm. was during the 80s, which were really difficult years. People forget, I think, following the awful crash here in, you know, 2008, 9, 10, just how very bad the 1980s were. They were economically really dreadful years, a huge amount of emigration. A lot of women that I knew were emigrating. And of course, at the beginning of the 80s, I thought now time to get marching here and to put the, <laughs> the feminist hat very firmly on my head. So I'll start off with what I know, and I started off in UCD. And as the years went on, I was obviously working an awful lot with women. And I thought, I just fell in love with the woman. And I thought, right, that's it. And um, I never fell in love with the man again. So, you know, that's been the situation up until now. So I suppose mm. I'm not gender fluid. I'm not non-binary. Uh, you know, I'm still lesbian, but who knows? You know, uh, because that whole 
picture of gender has opened up so differently for us now, which enraged me when I saw Pope Francis in the Vatican saying gender cannot be changed. Yes, it can. <laughs> so, that, I mean, that, that fluidity, um, I mean, it, it seems to me sometimes that fluidity better describes the nature of, of being a human with, with sexual feelings than the sort of labelling, be it by Pope Francis or by, you know, yeah, fine-tuning yes. somebody describing them as one thing or another. Well, because yes. it might be one thing today and another but, but thing tomorrow. But, you know, historically, I think, and I'm very proud of being lesbian, um, it's not something that I need to call something else because I, I think it's a great, you know, I think it's a fine thing to be. But at the same time, I think that we did have to you know, specifically say, if you're a man, I'm gay, or I'm lesbian, mm. or I'm later bisexual, and then subsequently, of course, trans and so on. Be precisely because it was so difficult to break out of that straight jacket yeah. that we were all in. But I think that what's happening now is really very, very interesting, because I've always thought personally, given my own history, that sexuality is a spectrum, and that in a way, very often I think you land up on a point in the spectrum where you are reasonably okay and you're doing all right. But, you know, the point that you were probably really asking me about there, Hugh, is, you know, was it difficult to come out as lesbian in those days? And that yes. was, would have been back at the end of the 1980s. And, of course, it was fiercely difficult. In many ways, people would say to me, well, are you coming out? And I would say, yes, I'm, I'm absolutely delighted to come out. But actually, nobody else really wanted to know um, no straight people didn't really want to know mm. about your sexuality. So I, I can remember being on... You know, I used to do a lot of radio work at that, at that time for RTE, actually. Um, and I would, they would say, well, uh, how will we describe you? And I would say this, that, and, um, and I'm a member of uh, the Lesbians Together or whatever it was. And they would never, ever, ever, ever use anything with the word lesbian in it, ever. So you would be called... Activist was another word they didn't like, and they still don't like the word activist. Feminist, they had problems even with feminist. So if you were a feminist, I remember being called an alleged feminist at something once. I thought, no, no, I am a feminist. It's not an allegation. And I certainly wasn't an alleged lesbian. But people really didn't want to know except other lesbians. It was a very so Irish kind of a thing, wasn't it? I remember totally. I'm old enough to remember that period, totally. and I knew lots of people who... Um, they weren't in the closet, no. but, but they weren't publicly out either. It no, was like kind of a and I, I, I mean, I remember other academics, a couple of other academics, younger, a little bit younger than me, maybe. And I, at that stage, I was, what, 40-ish or something. So I wasn't a young woman or anything. Um, but coming to me and saying, do you think I should come out? And I would say, well, yes, but actually you'll probably find it rather difficult to come out in UCD because they really do not want to touch you with a barge pole. Mm. Um, but I decided, I did decide, you know, when I started women's studies in UCD, which was started very much as a feminist and yes, a very political gesture, it was to challenge the university and the knowledge making that we were involved in, that I would um, have a, a conference on sexuality and sexualities, plural. And uh, there were some academics on my board of studies at that time who said, oh, no, 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 we can't do that. And I think that what they were afraid of was that it might become lesbian. So I said, oh, okay, okay. And I thought it taught me a really important lesson, two lessons, that you never ask permission. Don't tell people if you're going to do something like that. And secondly, use the word you really want to use, whether it's lesbian 
or whether it's abortion, or whether it's radical, or whether it's revolution, or whatever it is, be upfront about who and what you are. So the following year, we did not have a conference on sexualities. We had a conference which is still going strong called Lesbian Lives. And I just thought, right, that's the way you actually have to go. That you can't just be messing around and pretending, because that is the game that gets played in this country. Mm. And I mean, I think we saw that very, very clearly during the repeal, the Eighth Amendment, which we called that so that people actually wouldn't have to use the word abortion, but that they would get into the habit and become familiar and become more comfortable with it and understand that it, that is the word for a medical procedure. That's it. You mentioned women's studies, and yeah. you've described this very conservative institution, UCD, yes. which presumably was in the process of some form of change, which you were part of, affecting yeah, that change. Not much. But that was a particularly, but given that, that was a that was a radical moment to, to have a yes. women's studies department. Wasn't yes, it, it was. It was very, very radical. We had really started off in the 1980s. We started something called the UCD Women's Studies Forum. And I went around the, the university putting up notices, meeting of Women's Studies Forum at 1pm on Tuesdays in D109. And people would say to me, oh, do lots of people go to that? I would say, oh, yeah, absolutely loads, loads. And of course, there was nobody at all. Uh, so we built that up over several years. And again, it teaches you a very good lesson that you build something. You build, you build, you build, you get people involved. And uh, eventually in 1990, then Women's Studies actually started. Mm. And that was seen as being um, a very challenging and very contestatory sort of thing uh, to do. And of course, it got dismissed. Um, people didn't want to give us any funding. Um, they were dismissive, dismissive of it in scholarly and academic terms. But we really kept on going and built up a very, very strong programme, which is still today a very... I mean, we were the leading programme, really, in, in women's studies in Ireland, and one of the leading programmes in Europe. And we were also known as a programme which never sold out. I mean, this was a feminist women's studies programme and was absolutely up for... Uh, feminist um, ideals and politics. And it's now internationally recognised as a, as a professional academic discipline, Absolutely. as established as, as, as yeah. any other, but not, but, but not back then, as you Not say. back then, yeah. and too late for me. <laughs> <laughs> but that, but doesn't, you know. that doesn't sound like a job. You described your career, you didn't like to describe your career earlier on as a job, <laughs> well, but that career? sounds like, whether it's a career or whether it's not just a job, is it? It's a vocation, maybe? It was a commitment. Okay. It was a real commitment, I think, and but also it was fabulous. Um, it was wonderful. I mean, you were doing work which I felt really had a purpose, had a goal, and it was about connecting the, 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 the ivory tower and what happens every day mm, yeah. in the world. And, the, and it was about challenging the sorts of systems that keep people in situations of awful distress and squalor and poverty and so on. And it was about trying to break down those systems. It was about trying to break down all the dualities, that the, the binaries that divide us, which even the previous, the podcast on here previously was talking about the, you know, the gates, the walls... That, that are put up between us. And I always think of women's studies, and certainly the kind of women's studies I was involved in, as being about that. So we not only did that in UCD in Belfield, but we went out into the community with our women's studies programmes um, for women who would never have got near third-level education. And those programmes, those outreach programmes, are 
really strong and really good. They have never been appropriately funded, in my view, but they are still up and running. And there are now countless women who did actually come and get degrees um, through that kind of outreach, which has now become somewhat more accepted, but is still not properly funded. I mean, meanwhile, outside the ivory tower, out in the so-called real world, in the decade preview, you talked about how grim the 80s were, and yes, one of yes. the things that made the 80s so grim was a sort of was a reactionary backlash, which led to the passing of the original Eighth Amendment, led to the defeat of, a, of an amendment on divorce. It, 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 there was a real attempt, I, I think, in my view of it is, to build a very high wall stop people like you getting your hands on Ireland, basically, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, absolutely. Well, not just like, you know, like me, there were others before me, of course, who were, mm. who were doing this. I mean, when you put it like that and you say to me, what were my 80s and 90s like? I mean, the 80s and the 90s for me were marked by referendum after referendum yeah. after referendum. And they were all about the kind of Ireland that you would are would not wish to see happening. So we had the Eighth Amendment, then we had divorce, then we had the 1992 um, abortion referendum. Um, oh, and uh, we had, then we had divorce again in 95. And then at the end of, well, beginning of the 2000s, we had abortion again. So but they were years of really very hard political fighting when you really did have to fight for you were fighting for people's uh, well-being. You were fighting really for people's right to freedom. And they were all freedom fights. And at the same time, I was very involved in LGBT politics and we were fighting very hard all that time for decriminalization of homosexuality in 92 and then later on. And in retrospect, there were, there were, there were a, a large number of small victories, weren't there? The, from, yeah. from decriminalization to the narrow passage of divorce to the way the results went in the succeeding referendums yes. on abortion. They were small victories on, on abortion, but they were victories nonetheless. Yes, yes, they were. And I mean, you took it issue by issue. And I think that's really how you have to do your politics, that you, you go at it issue by issue. So, I mean, we did... Um, we, we did have equal pay legislation in the middle of the 1970s and that, that we then equal status legislation, that helped. We did a huge amount of work around violence against women um, in relation to both domestic violence and rape legislation. So that work was going ahead, the setting up of refuges. Uh, you certainly couldn't speak about big victories, but mm. it was about inching forward. And also, I mean, I, I think that... Um, there was an immense amount of work done, a bit unquantifiable, in educational circles as well. And that came, of course, from so many teachers going through the system and beginning right. to kind of change the actual curriculum that they had in front of them. The two re referendums, which perhaps wrongly in my head are linked together, but I think there's, a, there's such a range of associations between them in terms yeah. of who was on either side of the argument, yes. who were the key people in them. And I suppose it's one of the things, I'm a bit of a politics nerd, one of the things that strikes me about Ireland is the place of referendums. That's, you know, that's, they're not as significant in other countries. And they're very interesting. People are critical sometimes of how they're yeah. operated. But they mean there's the opportunity to put something to the people in a way that wouldn't happen uh, usually in, in most countries. And you bring this experience of several referendum battles, some lost, yeah. some won, to these two big fights. Uh, and to take them one at a time, marriage equality first. I mean, there was some argument on 
the pro-marriage equality side that you shouldn't need to have a referendum at all, that yeah. it was available within the law. And some people thought, why, you know, why do we have to kind of expose ourselves to this apart yes. from anything else? In retrospect, it was all seen as sweetness, sunshine and light, but that wasn't necessarily the case. No, no, it? and we did have a lot of arguments about it. I, I, at, at, for quite a, a while, I felt that we shouldn't have to have a referendum, mm. that it was possible to achieve um, equal marriage without, without it. But at the same time, there was always a bit of a pull inside me that was saying, but it might be a very healthy thing to have a referendum and to put it out there on the agenda. I suppose I'm strangely quite a risk-averse person and I, I, I did worry at one point that we might win a referendum. But then I, I think we all got a bit more courageous and polls did start. I'm, I'm talking now during the, say, around about 2010, 2011, mm. 2012. And I think um, that referendums have served us well over the past three or four years, but they didn't serve us well for a very long time. So you have to be very careful about a referendum. Mm. Now, back in 2013, after we were really preparing at that stage for a marriage equality referendum. But at the same time, after the death of Savita Halepanavra, it was very clear to myself and, and a few others at that stage that we would absolutely have to have a, a referendum on repeal the 8th, but that there was no way that we could do that unless we were sure that we would have a good chance at it. And that really, if the marriage equality referendum was going to be held anyway, it was much more sensible to have that go first and then try for abortion because there's very little doubt in my mind and marked in my own career and my own life that the more, more difficult issue, the more strangely more stigmatizing issue for a woman in this country has always been abortion. So is it simplistic to think of marriage equality as being, as well as being a, obviously a campaign and a uh, in, in its own right, as a sort of a dry run or a pilot run or a proving ground for some of the issues of building a winning coalition in this new Ireland? Well, it, certainly we, we started to build that coalition before that referendum because we knew we were going to have to do it. But at the same time, I think, I think it's maybe a little bit unfair to marriage equality. I Indeed. Mean, we did run a really <laughs> very, very good campaign to call it a proving ground. But what it did, it did, we learned a lot from that, although that was not why we held that referendum. What were the key things that were learned? Well, I think that uh, being, you need to run a very constructive uh, campaign, you need to prepare very carefully, you need to do a lot of research, um, and you need to be positive. You have to find a way of putting out there messages of speaking with people, you have to find a way of putting that out there that is constructive and positive and that engages absolutely everybody, that this is not a kind of a niche issue. This is not just about the gays, so to mm. speak. And subsequently, indeed, um, with the repeal the Eighth Amendment and abortion, that this was not just about uh, women's freedoms. This was about what kind of country we wanted to live in. Mm. So in a way, both referendums actually put that kind of question to the country and, you know, put it very, very strongly. Is this the kind of country that believes that certain freedoms should be available to everyone? But also telling people's own personal stories and also taking and, taking control essentially of the language well that, which had been owned by other people the other side previously. yes but that is one of the tactics then that you use but i mean the overall is the, mm. the strategy is of course to um 
to tell an overall story which is positive and which is about values. So, um, and who are the best people to tell the stories? The best people to tell the stories are those who have had themselves those experiences and who are the most reliable and trustworthy witnesses um, and whose stories are truly humanly moving because we all vote not just out of our heads but we vote with our hearts, we vote with our lives, we vote with everything um, and you always have to move people to make a decision and that means making yourself vulnerable. It means some people have to make themselves vulnerable mm. so that others can understand human yeah. distress yeah. and what that denial of freedom actually means. Now, in relation to the, um, the repeal the eighth campaign, there was a received wisdom. Received wisdom is, of, is very often no wisdom at all. <laughs> and I know in my profession, for example, um, a lot of people believed that th what ended up being the proposition and the, the, the proposed legislation to accompany it was far more, was far, far further out there, was a far greater liberalisation than they thought was achievable in Ireland. Uh, as approved, they were totally wrong. But yeah. it was around, it was out there in the, both the political and the media establishment. People were shocked by the recommendations of the Citizens' Assembly. They thought yeah. it had lost the run of itself somehow and that this would never pass. Um, should that cause us all to have a think about how um, how out of touch perhaps we in the media or indeed in the political establishment are. Well, I would hope that it did uh, because we never doubted that. Um, I mean, we knew going back to about 2014, 2015, some of the organisations had actually come together to discuss the kind of legislation that we would like. So this was long before the Citizens' Assembly came into being. And we had thought that we, we should actually try to go for 14 weeks access to abortion on request and various other health and so on, so various other things. And it was very interesting that that was exactly what Citizens' Assembly had actually come up with. So even before that, um, I mean, there was a strategy, there was a plan, there was thinking about it. And we can come back to the Citizens' Assembly in a moment, because I, I think it's really very interesting. Mm. But I do think that my own experience during the repeal campaign was that the political... Uh, the the media establishment was very, very, very resistant to the notion that we could win this campaign. And we constantly heard that this campaign, together for yes, that there's no leadership, that it's very disorganized, that it's very incoherent, that it hasn't done this, that, and the other. And, you know, quite frankly, you know, I was looking around me and saying, why don't they come down to headquarters and see what's actually happening here? Why don't they get out on the campaign trail and see the hordes of young people swarming all over the country? And the reason I still think it's you, and you know, you can correct me if, if you think I'm wrong or you can fight with me or whatever, the fact that this was a campaign where the men were certainly involved, but it was driven all along by women. It was driven by women. And they just simply could not, they didn't see it because they couldn't see it, because women in those positions of driving leadership and very often being accused of being ruthless and tough and bring it on, I say. Uh, and I'm sure that we were as ruthless and as tough as anybody else. Because why? Because we knew that we could win that. And we knew it going back. I, I certainly knew from 2013 that we could definitely do it. And I said, 
and I said it personally, in public, we've got five years to do it, and we did it in four and a half. Yes! <laughs> <laughs> I can tell you, I'm certainly not going to disagree with because you about the that, political, that analysis. The social mood had changed, the mm. political mood had changed, and it was that tragic death that changed it, was tipped it over. Ireland had changed, had been changed hugely. And it was tipped over. And I always knew we'd, won, we'd win marriage equality. Always knew we would win that. But not necessarily by as much. And no. I think, um, no. to, come back to, to come back to where we started, and that's the I think that it's itself. incredibly important that, that that two to one win is made it, of course it was significant. And yeah. for, first and foremost, it was significant for the women who didn't have to get in a boat to England anymore. But it is also significant because it made a statement by Ireland to itself, yes. as well as by Ireland to the world, I think, secondarily. And that statement said that this really is a very different place now, isn't it? Absolutely, and that's the part I'm really very proud of, that when called upon to stand up and say it's a different country, we, we, we actually do believe in these freedoms. We did it not once, but twice. So, you know, we are actually quite good once we get the bit between our teeth. We're really quite good at saying, yes, no, I'm, I'm definitely for this, I'm in favour of this, which is also why I think that it is a momentum which it is so important for us to hold on to. And people say to me, oh, well, now you can sit back now, you've been through mm. two referendums and they were both winners and, well, you know, tis far from victory I was raised, so I'm very glad about those victories. But there is so much else that needs to be done. Direct provision, homelessness, still the ongoing violence against women, still no childcare really that's adequate for women, and, and, and education access for all kinds, uh, poverty. You know, there's so many issues that we need to take on and we can actually do it because I don't think that people in this country remain immune to the distress of others. We've seen twice recently how they can actually stand up and fight for others. And I do think that we can continue to do that. I'm not particularly idealistic. I am much more of a pragmatist, actually, than an idealist. I look at things very straight in the face ever since that Lesbian Lives example in UCD, and I say, call a spade a spade. Um, and I, I think that there are things we can do. And personally, yes, I do have an agenda. Absolutely. And you can see those, you can, you can actually see those things happening because people throw up their hands in despair sometimes and they look at something like, well, Homelessness um, or direct provision of or violence against women, all those things. And they of say, course they can be resolved. Happening? It requires political will and it requires the electorate to demand of its politicians that they make those commitments to redistribute income so that families can have homes. And I mean, I know this, I see it every day of the week and in various kinds of work I do, you know, that, that women are tearing their hair out because of homelessness, that women are over in direct provision centres not able to cook food for their children. And I'm saying, you know, they're, they're, this has gone too far. There are things that have gone too far in this country that we actually really have to stop. And yes, it is a question of political will. And I do believe that the next general election, there will be some tough questions. We also have climate change to deal with yes. and extinction of species. So there are very big so issues. is there a challenge with pri making priorities then? Because that's a long list. You know, it was only George, was it one of the Bushes who couldn't keep two things, or was that Reagan? Couldn't, couldn't walk and chew gum at the same walk time. Walk and chew gum, at the, the rest of us are well able to walk and chew gum at the same time, and to keep and <laughs> keep different different issues going in our heads 
absolutely at the same time. So it is not beyond the wish of women, and if men are a bit worried about it, follow our lead. I can't really follow up on that, so I'm going to wrap it up and say, Alva Smith, it has been a, an honour and a privilege to talk to you today. I hope you've enjoyed it. Enjoy the rest of your stay at Body and Soul. Thank you. Thank you, Alva. Thank, thank you all very much. Thank you. Thank you. And that's it for today's podcast. Thanks to producer Jennifer Ryan and our engineer JJ Vernon. And remember that you can subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or whatever your preferred podcast provider might be. You can mail me at hlinahan at irishtimes.com or you can usually find me on Twitter. Until the next time, thanks for listening. 